Hi, everybody. I'm Ember. And I'm Quinn. Together, we're best friends who happen to be married, pervy, dark, and full of humor. We come together to bring you the Fiercely Altered Perspective podcast, also known as the FAP Pod. One so good, it'll be hard to beat. Coming Friday, March 2nd, 2018. Join us each week as we cover all those creepy topics we secretly enjoy. From true crime to Tinkerbell and every dark, delicious thing in between. Stay tuned at the end of each episode where we'll have a little game of guess who. Meaning, we'll give you a description for the following week's episode that will require you to do a little bit of armchair investigation to uncover who or what we will be covering. So join us on our social media where we will keep the details moist until our release. Oh, God. <laughs> no. <laughs> we can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the Fap Pod. And be sure to join our Facebook group, the official Fap Pod group, for discussions and sneak peeks. We're busting down the door so you can see things from our perspective, and we hope you stick around to tell us yours. Until then, keep your eyes open and your palms soft. See you in March. Hard to beat. On March 18th of 1950, 13-year-old Jeanette Crispin was babysitting for the Romax in their small, isolated home on the outskirts of Columbia, Missouri. That night, the police received a phone call from a girl screaming hysterically, but were unable to get an address. At 1.35 a.m., the Romax returned home to find Jeanette murdered. The still-unsolved crime inspired the widely told urban legend, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs which itself inspired several movies, including the 1979 horror film When a Stranger Calls and its 2006 remake. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. So, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2018, and also welcome to episode 21, our first episode of the year. We hope everyone had a great holiday and a safe and happy new year, and we just wanted to ring in 2018 with some exciting developments. We're working hard to get a Patreon up. And if all went well, you should be seeing that at the debut of this episode. Yes, yes. And along with, you know, the debut of the Patreon, we're also switching up the format a little bit. So we had been alternating minisodes and full episodes. But in order to provide a kind of substantial bonus episode for our Patreon supporters, we're going to switch to just releasing full episodes. This will free up a lot of my time to you know, do better research and spend more time on it and just, you know, make sure every episode is as good as it possibly can be. So hopefully that is cool with you guys. And uh, who knows, you might be seeing some some minisodes pop up here and there in the future. Yeah, totally. Um, we also are going to be trying some live uh, video as well. So we're still working that out. What uh, platform Oh no, gonna they're going to see our faces. No. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. We'll see yeah. about that one. Stay tuned. But uh, since it is a new year, Chelsea, do you have any New Year's resolutions? Well, you at least know right now that I've roped you into doing a Whole30, which uh, is just terrible. It's like eating no sugar or flour for 30 days. Oh, and no dairy. 
So it's terrible. Basically, all of our favorite foods. That part's not so great. Uh, my other New Year's resolution is to try to keep off Twitter late at night, uh, which some listeners who have interacted with may know that I'm not quite sticking to that, but hopefully I'll get better and, uh, and read more. So actually, my now playing for this week is going to be a book. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, what about you, David? Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Uh, besides sort of uh, tagging along on the whole 30. <laughs> yeah. Unwilling participant? Yes. Um, I'm, uh, I guess, restructuring my art studio stuff. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> more to come on that. And uh, yes, reading more. And uh, that's that's about it. I'm I'm never really big on resolutions. Well, because I feel like you make them and then... I feel like at least for me, I tend to break them by like March and then I just feel bad about it. I'd rather just uh, be me. What is the wait? What is it? New Year. Same me. That's what everyone on the Twitter says late at night when I'm on. Uh Um, Right on. Well, do you have a couple of shout outs? I do. So the trailer that you heard before we started was for an upcoming podcast called the Fiercely Altered Perspective Podcast, a.k.a. Fap Pod. <laughs> so it's by uh, Ember, who is one of the original hosts of Color Me Dead, which I've been listening to you know, since the beginning. But she's branching off. She's starting a podcast actually with her husband, Quinn. And I'm very excited for it. It's going to be, you know, I think, dark and, and dirty and funny. And I'm just I'm stoked. And then the other shout out I have is actually for uh, Charles, one of our earliest listeners that we interacted with he has a podcast that he just released his first episode and it's really great it's called the last hometown and it's about post-apocalyptic media kind of end of the world media which is just such an amazing idea and the first episode is about the poseidon adventure and it's really great i encourage anyone you know especially those of you into uh horror movies i feel like there's quite a bit of overlap with the horror and the apocalypse movies he is going to cover some zombie apocalypse movies so uh definitely definitely check him out yeah congrats charles on launching the last hometown and also ember and quinn all right do you have some shout outs for our new reviewers oh i do um just wanted to give a shout out to cold case murder mystery podcast um, They're another awesome true crime podcast. Yes. So thanks for the review. And also Dog Collector, who that's Morgan. We also have Milo and I, or Milo Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can... I read it as Milo and I too. Yeah. I guess, I guess you could, or Milo A. Nindy. Sure. All right. And Tater Tot 658. Thanks for those reviews. We really, really, really appreciate it. Also wanted to give a shout out to Mariah. She's an awesome uh, longtime listener and has been super interactive, uh, has um, a member uh, of our cult. Yes. Yes. A member of our cult. And she sent us the double feature of When a Stranger Calls, which includes the original 79 version and the 2006 so thank you. Yes, that was very generous. She's also got the Missouri connection. So we talked a bit about actually the case we talked about on a little podcast of horrors because you now in St. Louis. And yeah, so, you know, she's Columbia, Missouri is where this case took place. Have you been? Um, uh, no, actually, uh, oddly enough, I have not. Yeah. So it's a couple hours drive from St. Louis, kind of more in central Missouri. And we'll get into what it's best known for is basically being the home of Mizzou. But I went there for the wedding of a friend of a friend. <laughs> and it's it's nice college town. But 
we have a lot of guesses for this week's episode. You know, When a Stranger Calls is a very popular movie. So hopefully you guys are happy that we're covering it. I know uh, these people are. So on Instagram, we have OCP Kink, who guessed the movie, and Tales from the Shadows, who guessed the crime. Um, and I also just wanted to quickly shout out Kick-Ass Facts, Dinos and Sharks, Lindy2, and Cowtown Crime Blog, a.k.a. Marguerite from our cult, uh, because they all commented and let us know that they were super excited for this movie. And we're excited that you're excited. And hopefully uh-huh. we bet on the right film, the right version, the 1979 version and not the remake, because that's what all my research is on. <laughs> But we're going to talk about the remake because we watched it yes. a little bit. You mean you didn't research the 2006 version? A little bit. No, stop recording. <laughs> we have Thomas on Facebook who guessed it. Uh, also, Mike Morford from the Criminology Podcast jumped in with a uh, did you check on the children comment on Twitter. Taylor guessed the movie. Lucy from the Les Mordia Podcast and of Myth and Mercy both let us know that the movie scared the bejesus out of them. <laughs> The first time they watched it. And then our buddy Charles, a.k.a. Last Hometown, let us know that he thought it was too easy, <laughs> which I don't honestly I had not seen the po- I posted a picture of the poster. I had never seen that poster before, so I probably would not have been able to guess it. I actually probably would not have either. But it is Carol Kane, so you could Google, do a little Google sleuthing to figure that out. But before we get into the actual podcast, I just want to ask you, do you have any babysitter stories? No, I don't have any I don't have any interesting babysitter stories. Uh, Were you ever a babysitter? Do you ever have to babysit or is that Oh, I was thinking of being babysat. Either or. Uh nothing scary when I was being babysat. That sounds really weird now that I say it. Is babysat a word? Yeah, I think that's when you sit on babies. <laughs> oh, no. Don't do that. That's why it was a terrible experience. The babysitter sat on me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> smashed, smashed me. It's okay. My uh, the, with the plates in my skull, those are soft, right? When you're a baby. They are soft when you're a baby, yes. Yeah, just, it was all good. It was good but you just reinflate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I d- okay, that's a long way of saying, no, I never, I never did any babysitting. Sorry. How about you? Well, growing up with an older sister, she was generally my babysitter like four years older than me so kind of by the time that I was able to be left alone she was old enough to to watch um I did have to babysit before a couple of times I gotta say I was not a fan I don't tend to like children when they get to the age where you know you could hire a babysitter I feel like that's like seven or eight they wouldn't they would trust someone who was like 14 15 I babysit a really weird kid who just wanted to like play family where she was like an actual baby like a gaga goo goo baby but she was like eight and it was just a a very strange surreal experience and then i I stopped babysitting after that did they did they at least pay you well yeah it's all right it's a neighbor so i much prefer dog sitting i used to do that for my neighbors i used to um dog sit for this little yorkshire terrier named bosco who was just vicious and I would put him on a leash and take him for a walk. And then my dad would have to come and take him off the leash because when I tried to take the leash off of him, he would try to bite me. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, what an angry little dog. Yeah. But that's a big tangent. I don't know if I'll keep that in. No, it's um, good. I like it. You should. Did you get any phone calls where like, have you checked on the dog? <laughs> I can't say I ever did. All right. All right. Well, on that note, why don't we get into it? Mm-hmm. 
Jeanette Christman was born on March 21st of 1936 in Columbia, Missouri, to parents Charles and Lula Mae Christman. Her parents owned Ernie's Cafe and Steakhouse, and the family lived in a tiny one-bedroom apartment above the restaurant. She had two sisters, Retta, who was 18 months younger than Jeanette, and Cheryl, who was just a baby in 1950. Retta remembered her sister as being very smart and poised for success, while another friend, Mary Beth Boucher Jackson, remembered her as being, quote, sweet as can be. She was also incredibly hardworking, even at just 13 years old, and was constantly on the lookout for part-time jobs, in addition to doing chores around the house. When she asked her parents whether she could babysit to earn more money on the side, her parents agreed under the condition that they vet the family she'd be working for. Eventually, they allowed her to babysit for two families, the Romics and the Mullers. The Romics lived at 1015 Stewart Road, just south of the Columbia Cemetery. At the time, it wasn't even considered to be a part of Columbia proper. It was actually 100 yards past the town limit and should have fallen under the jurisdiction of the Boone County Sheriff's Department, a fact which played a significant role in the investigation. Columbia is probably best known now as home to the University of Missouri, a.k.a. Mizzou, and although it's now a thriving city with a population of more than 120,000 people, in 1950, the population was just 31,000. The Romix house was in an undeveloped part of town and was therefore quite isolated. At the time, Columbia did still, for the most part, have its small-town innocence, with residents keeping their doors unlocked. However, in the lead-up to March of 1950, there had been a rash of sexual assaults around town. A few days before Halloween, in October of 1949, a 16-year-old babysitter was attacked and raped by a man wearing a white sack over his head, with holes cut out for the eyes. It was the Phantom Killer. I solved it. Oh, you did. Well, the next month, Chelsea, in a house just a block away, 18-year-old Sally Johnson was attacked while sleeping on the couch in her living room, and the assailant attempted to rape her. The very next day, a man wearing a white hood attacked and raped a University of Missouri student at gunpoint. Police were also receiving frequent calls about prowlers and peeping toms around town, and police began encouraging residents to lock their doors and pull down their shades at night. On December 4th, police arrested 26-year-old Jake Bradford, who was black, after he was caught in the act of peering through someone's window. After 10 hours of questioning and a week in jail, he confessed to the October rape of the babysitter and the attack on Sally Johnson. After Bradford's arrest, no more attacks were reported, that is, until March 18th of 1950. March 18th was quite literally a dark and stormy night, marked by consistent rolling thunder and heavy sleep. Ed and Ann Romack had requested for Jeanette to babysit their three-year-old son, Greg, while they attended a bridge party at Moon Valley Villa. Greg was already asleep with his radio on by the time the Romacks left at 7.50 p.m. Ed Romack kept a shotgun in a closet off the living room, and he'd shown Jeanette how to load and fire the gun, later saying that he was conscious of his home being in an isolated section of town. At 10.35 p.m., Officer Roy McCowan, a Columbia policeman, received a phone call from a girl who was screaming hysterically. The only words McCowan could make out were, come quick, but the call disconnected before the girl could identify herself or give an address. Because the call came in so late, there were no staff working at the test board at the telephone company, and so the call could not be traced. The Romax returned home at around 1.35 a.m., and it was clear immediately that something was not right. The front door was unlocked and the back door was ajar. The front Venetian blinds were also open and a side window was broken. Inside the house, the Romax found Christman dead in a pool of blood in the living room next to the family's baby grand piano. Their son was still asleep in his bed. Jeanette had put up a fight. She was covered in fresh bruises and had scratch marks on her face. There were also physical signs that the struggle between Jeanette and her attacker stretched between the kitchen where the phone was located, down the hallway, and into the living room where her body was found. She had been raped and her beige skirt was left pushed up to her waist. Jeanette's cause of death was asphyxiation. She was strangled 
pulled by a cord, which had been removed from an electric iron. In addition, she had been stabbed twice in the head with a small circular weapon. As we mentioned earlier, the case should have fallen under the jurisdiction of the Boone County Sheriff's Department. However, the first officer on the scene was Lieutenant Joe Douglas from the Columbia City Police Force, bringing Police Chief E.M. Pond into the investigation. The City Police Force and Boone County Sheriff's Department, led by Sheriff Glenn Powell, were at odds from day one, both in their investigation and in their theories on who committed the murder. On March 19th, Chief Pond declared that he would solve the murder in two days. He also asked the public for help by reporting anyone who acted strangely, missed work, or had visible scratches after the murder. Columbia police examined the house and concluded that the killer had entered through the side window, which he'd broken with the garden hoe found nearby. Although most of the pictures and papers on the baby grand piano were not disturbed, police found one smear of mud on a sheet of paper which they claimed was a footprint, proving that the attacker had climbed through the window and over the top of the piano, which was directly under the broken window. Police thus concluded that the killer was likely a prowler who attacked Jeanette in a crime of opportunity. The sheriff's department had a starkly different theory. Although the hoe had been found near the broken window, the Romick said that it was in the utility closet when they left. They also swore that they locked the front door before leaving and that Jeanette would not have opened it for anyone she didn't know. Furthermore, the porch light was on and Jeanette usually did not turn it on until she heard a car pulling up in the driveway. Also, the piano which the killer would have had to climb over was waxed recently and had no scratch marks on its surface. The last and most compelling piece of evidence to the sheriff's department was the murder weapon, the cord from the electric iron. It had been cut off, not ripped, and the iron itself was stored in the Romic sewing room down the hallway from the living room. All of these observations led the sheriff's department to conclude that the killer had known Jeanette and had been let into the house. He was also likely known to the Romic since he seemed to be familiar with their house in order to find the sewing room, iron and scissors, rather than just ripping a cord from any of the electronics in the living room. The differing conclusions of the two law enforcement agencies led to drastically different investigations. Columbia City Police carried out what was called a, quote, wholesale arrest method, where they took in and questioned hundreds of suspects, largely based on tips and what they deemed to be suspicious behavior. For the most part, those taken in for questioning were members of Columbia's black community. The Sheriff's Department, on the other hand, focused on Ed and Ann Romack. Although they both had been at the bridge party all night, Deputy Julius Wedemeyer pushed Ed for names of anyone who might know the layout of their house. Eventually, both Ed and Anne gave the name of 27-year-old Robert Mueller, a high school friend of Ed's who served as an Army Air Corps captain during World War II. He was also the father of the other child Jeanette babysat for. In her deposition, Anne Romack stated, quote, I felt from the very beginning that Bob was the guilty person. She talked about her own encounters with Mueller, during which he frequently made passes at her, including the day before the murder, when he came by the house to help her hem a dress and he groped her breasts. In Ed's deposition, he claimed that Mueller had often spoken about Jeanette, commenting on her breasts and hips and speculating that she was a virgin. He said that he always wanted to, quote, get with a virgin. Mueller himself admitted to knowing the layout of the Romax house, including using the couple's iron and scissors multiple times and being in the utility closet where the garden hoe was stored. He also called the Romax at 9 a.m. the day after the murder before any details of the crime had been made public. And he offered to, quote, come over and clean up that bloody mess. Yes, David, that face you're making. So Mueller admitted to police that he told patrons at his father's restaurant, quote, I don't have an alibi, but buddy, I don't have no scratches. Uh, Suspicious. Yeah. Mueller had been at the same bridge party as the Romax 
but did not remain there all night. Several guests reported that he left for about an hour or two before reappearing. Ed Romack stated that Mueller had discussed the crime with him later and expressed doubt that the killer had entered through the window, telling Ed that anyone could have gained access to the house by just showing up and saying that Ed had sent them to get poker chips. Mueller also would have known that Jeanette was babysitting for the Romax because he had also asked her to babysit due to the bridge party, but she told him that she had already committed to the Romax. Well, in addition to the circumstantial evidence, Mueller was well known for always carrying a mechanical pencil in his front pocket. This pencil was later sent to the Highway Patrol Crime Lab, and it was found have the same outer diameter as the small circular stab wounds on Jeanette's scalp. As the sheriff's department built their case against Mueller, the city police not only were making no progress on the case, but Jake Bradford, the man who had been previously arrested for a series of rapes in Columbia, retracted his confession and claimed that the police department had held him illegally and threatened him. Sally Johnson, one of the victims, stated that Bradford looked, quote, awfully little like her attacker, and Bradford himself was unable to describe the mask that he had supposedly worn or show police to the house where the attacks took place. Bradford had also never been informed of his Fifth Amendment rights and had been called a, quote, black son of a bitch during questioning by Boone County Prosecuting Attorney Carl Sapp. Despite all this, Jake Bradford was convicted by two separate juries for the sexual assaults. However, the seed of doubt had been planted in the minds of some Columbia residents. The attack on Jeanette Christman was very similar to the rapes committed that fall and was also remarkably similar to the February 5, 1946 murder of 19-year-old Mary Lou Jenkins, who was raped and strangled with an electric cord that had been ripped from a lamp fixture while she was home alone, just blocks from the house where Jeanette was killed. Police pinned the murder on Floyd Cochran, a 34-year-old black man, after he was arrested for killing his wife later that month. However, there is no evidence that he was connected to the murder, and he never admitted to it, even as he readily admitted to killing his wife. Still, Cochran was convicted and executed for the murder of Mary Lou Jenkins the following year. The murders of Mary Lou Jenkins, Jeanette Christman, and the two assaults in the fall of 1949 had all occurred within blocks of each other and all targeted young women who were alone in a house. This was enough for many residents to speculate that neither Cochran nor Bradford were responsible for the crimes they'd been convicted of, since Christman had been killed after Bradford's arrest. Furthermore, all of these crimes took place about 15 minutes by foot from Robert Mueller's home at 112 Park Hill Avenue. Mueller had likely known Mary Lou Jenkins as he was only two years ahead of her in high school and were both members of the drama club. Also, the two victims who survived the attack described their attacker as wearing a sack mask, and Mueller later admitted to making similar masks in his spare time, as you do. It's quite the hobby, making creepy sack masks. I kind of grew out of that phase when I was in high school. Same. So by April of 1950, Sheriff Powell and Deputy Wedemeyer felt that they had enough evidence to arrest Mueller. They made their move on May 4th, arranging for Ed Romack to invite Mueller to a poker party at Moon Valley Villa in order to ensure that Mueller had his mechanical pencil with him, since he always used it to keep score. Wedemeyer took Mueller into custody after he left the house, but rather than take him to sheriff's headquarters, Wedemeyer took Mueller to his farmhouse outside of the city where Sheriff Powell was waiting. They questioned Mueller all night, after which Mueller agreed to take a polygraph test. They drove him to Jefferson City, where he took and passed the test, and they released him without charges at 5.30 p.m. on May 5th. Despite the evidence they had gathered against Mueller, the method which they used to question him essentially ruined the case. And although Powell and Wedemeyer claimed that they had done it to avoid publicity, it was quite likely that they did it to avoid having to interact with the city police. 
One last chance to charge Mueller with the crime came and went. Boone County Circuit Court Judge W.M. Dinwiddie convened a grand jury to investigate the murder. This jury was given access to the investigations carried out by both the city police and the sheriff's department, including all the statements by the Romax. Rather than identify a suspect, as was expected, the jury released a statement on June 17th of 1950 saying that they would not be formally charging anyone with a crime. And in this statement, they also criticized the lack of cooperation between the police and the sheriff's department. Following their shocking decision not to charge anyone, rumors persisted that the jury had been paid off, although there was no evidence to support this. Prosecuting attorney Carl Sapp also appeared to be acting in ways favorable to Mueller. He asked Paul Peterson, an attorney who was good friends with the Muellers, to give testimony before the grand jury, uh, later insisting that he did so because Peterson requested it. But of course, Peterson emphatically denied this, saying that Sapp had asked him to testify. And there is some reason to believe that the Muellers may have had some influence around town. His family was very wealthy. His father, Carl, owned Mueller's Virginia Cafe, where Robert worked as the manager, and their family lived in the upscale Grasslands neighborhood. Charles and Lula Mae Chrisman were even encouraged by their pastor not to pursue charges against them in civil court because the Mueller family could, quote, destitute and bankrupt your family and they could still outspend you. The Crispin family was firmly on the side of the sheriff's department throughout the investigation, and they strongly criticized the police department and particularly Sapp in their handling of Jeanette's case. They said that Sapp never once came to talk to them, even though he often discussed the case when running for re-election in 1950, at least in the context of using the case to disparage Powell and Wedemeyer. I gotta say I'm not a fan of the Sapp character. Yeah, no, definitely not. Well, on August the 9th of 1950, Mueller filed a civil suit against Powell and Wedemeyer for $400,000, claiming that their interrogation of him at the farmhouse violated his civil rights and that they had conspired to influence the grand jury to indict him. However, during the trial, Mueller himself testified that he was not threatened during the interrogation, had been given meals, and willingly agreed to the lie detector test. His father was also aware of his son being taken to Jefferson City for the lie detector test, despite his assertions otherwise during the trial. In fact, the purpose of his suit seems to be his anger at the sheriff's department for not releasing a statement clearing his name after the lie detector test and grand jury decision. If clearing his name was Mueller's ultimate goal, this strategy backfired spectacularly. Prior to the civil suit, his name was not publicly connected to the case. But after he filed the suit, all of the damaging testimony from the Romics, Powell, and Wittemeyer became public. The transcripts of Mueller's interrogation in the farmhouse was also made public, including his statement when questioned about the murder that, quote, I might have done it and forgotten it. I do things and forget them. It was also publicized that Mueller claimed he had left the party to go home and tend to a sick child with a doctor, a claim which said doctor denied when questioned by Wittemeyer. The district court ruled in favor of Powell and Wittemeyer, stating that they had probable cause to take Mueller into custody and that there was no proof of grand jury tampering. This ruling was upheld by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in June of 1953, officially ending the civil suit. By this time, Mueller had enlisted in the Air Force and moved with his family to Tucson, Arizona. Mueller served in the Air Force in Korea and Vietnam, finally retiring as a major. He lived the remainder of his life in San Jose, California, where he died on July 5, 2006. The case was briefly reopened in 1953, but it took 10 years to collect all of the files from the two agencies that investigated the case. And shortly after completing the file, it was lost, probably during the prosecutor's move to a new office. There is also no longer any trace of the physical evidence collected during the investigation. 
Jeanette Christman's parents remained in Columbia for nearly 25 years after her death. Charles Christman died in 1974. Shortly after his death, Lula Mae Christman moved to Kansas City and remained there until her death in 2009. Jeanette was buried on March 21, 1950, in Memorial Park Cemetery, three days after her murder on her 14th birthday. She was buried in a burgundy suit, which she had bought with her babysitting money. She was planning to wear it to church that Easter. So that's a, a sad ending to her story, which is a sad story. It is a very sad story. I have something that might perk you up a little bit. So you'll remember Jake Bradford. Yep. So in 1952, Jake Bradford was sentenced to 50 years in prison for the rape of that 16-year-old babysitter. But the very next year, in 1953, the Missouri Supreme Court re-examined Bradford's conviction and released him based on the fact that the police actually used threats of mob violence to get him to confess. And he was released later that year. And actually, his lawyer who defended him went on to become a very prominent Missouri citizen who was beloved by all. And hopefully Jake Bradford lived an awesome life. The only thing I saw was as he died in, I think, like the early 2000s in a retirement home. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, being an incarcerated for that full year that he was there is terrible. But just I'm so glad that it didn't end up with him like being 40 years for later years. Or for yeah. life or whatever when, you know. And that does happen. That happens quite yeah. often. That's why I was expecting it. So that, yeah, that does kind of end on a on a nicer note. Yes. So in terms of discussion questions, I guess the big one is, did Mueller do it? What do you think? There's so much circumstantial evidence. I just, I'm, I'm always leery of, of people who pass the lie detector test because they say there's so many variables that can yeah. occur. Isn't it like if you're told you're going to have a, a lie detector test, like people are, it's easier to pass? I thought the comment that he made when he was being interrogated was very weird, where he says he might have done it and then forgotten about it. And that's a thing that happens to him. I wonder if that could have affected the lie detector test. My favorite is when he's like, oh, you could just go to the house and ask for some poker chips. Like, that's how you could get in the house. I mean, not that I would do that personally or that's what I did, but. It's like his comments are almost too suspicious. He's like telling the patrons at the restaurant, I don't have any scratches, but I don't have an alibi, but I don't have any scratches. And the fact that his hobby was making creepy sack masks and like the, so I'm imagining, you know, mechanical pencils, I don't think they've changed much since 1950. And for those stab wounds to match a mechanical pencil when he's known to carry them, like what else could it be that would be that small unless the killer had like a teeny, teeny, tiny pipe. <laughs> um, I think what we really need was DNA was... testing. I know. Oh, I was going that direction. I was gonna say something silly, but what, um, what were you gonna say? You know, like had they made this in the '80s, it would have been like the slasher with the mechanical pencil, and it's like it's like scary music, synthy '80s horror mo- movie music, and, and then you hear, you the hear click. that. Click, 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 click. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. It's a really hard one. I mean, with all of that evidence and all of his statements. It's hard for me to think that he's innocent. But on the other hand, as far as I can tell, there's no reports of similar crimes in his future, you know, where he wound up and was it Tucson and then in San Jose. And you'd think, you know, if someone over a, what is it, four year period killed two people and raped two people in the same fashion, you know, you kind of wonder if they could stop. Yeah. So who knows? My other theory, whenever it comes down to stuff like that, like sprees that stop, is that probably got hit by a bus. It was just a random person that we'll never know, but hopefully they got painfully hit by a bus. I like that. I like that. Or it's uh, the Zodiac. You don't like my, I think Phantom Killer is more likely with that. Uh, I do. I like that. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that and is actually the, the timeline maybe matches up. You I, heard it here first, folks. Yep. When we write the book. 
you were there. No, that's awesome. I do love your uh, getting hit by a bus theory, though. Yay. That's good. All right. Wow. Ooh. All right. And I do want to uh, give credit to the sources that I used. The main one was the article Who Killed Jeanette Christman by Kate Masters for Inside Columbia. And the second article is also called Who Killed Jeanette Christman by TJ Greeny for the Columbia Tribune. So thank you for all of your hard work that I then benefited from. What a case. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Oh. It's it's cases like this are always a bit sad to me because it's very easy for me to put myself in the shoes of a 13-year-old girl trying to earn some pocket cash. Maybe not to buy like a suit though. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back talking about how this case, the uh, murder of Jeanette Christman, inspired the 1979 film When a Stranger Calls. Sit tight. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello? Have you checked the children? What? Hello, could you get me the police? Well, it's not how you do it by down here. Uh, have you checked the children? He's watching me through the windows. Well, if he calls again, we can try to trace it. Why haven't you checked the children? Please, can't you help me? I'm all alone here. What do you want? Your blood. Jill, this is Sergeant Sacker. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Jill, just get out of that house. And the terror just begins when a stranger calls. And we are back. A terrified young babysitter, an incessantly ringing phone, and whispered threats set the stage for one of the most suspenseful chillers ever filmed. Carol Kane stars as a babysitter who is tormented by a series of ominous phone calls until a compulsive cop played by Charles Durning is brought on the scene to apprehend the psychotic killer. Seven years later, however, the nightmare begins again when the madman returns to mercilessly haunt Kane, now a wife and mother, no longer a naive girl, Though still terrified, but prepared, she moves boldly to thwart the maniac's attack in scenes that culminate in a nerve-shattering conclusion. I like that one. Yeah, not bad. That was uh, uh, the back of one of the VHS covers, so did not write that. Thank you to uh, Columbia Pictures' film marketing department for yes, that. Great job. Yeah, yeah. I kind of enjoy like reading these plot summaries from the from what has already been done not that it makes it any easier for me it's just interesting turn of prose uh so we are going to primarily be talking about when a stranger calls the 1978 version and again just wanted to give a shout out to mariah who graciously donated a copy of this dvd so thank you again mariah for your generosity the director of when a stranger calls is Fred Walton, and besides this picture, well, I guess to me, 
And I think you've seen this, Chelsea. He directed 1986 slasher April Fool's Day. No, I have not seen that. No? Nope. Mm. We'll have to watch it this April Fool's Day. Yes. April Fool's Day is a lot of fun. It's uh, a group of kids who are invited over to like a, a house on the lake. And um, one by one, they get slaughtered. All right. He also directed the pilot for the 80s version of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, a film called The Rosary Murders, and then a lot of television, including I Saw What You Did, which is about a group of pranksters who unintentionally get the attention of a serial killer. I Saw What You Did Last Summer? I've seen that one. Oh, wait. <laughs> See, the interesting point about that is I think maybe the that book actually came out before the move, this TV movie was titled what it was, but the serial killer soon starts targeting them, and it stars Shawnee Smith, who, well, if you've seen the Saw series, she's in that, but she's also one of the co-stars of the amazing 1988 remake of The Blob. Which is excellent. I have seen that. Yes. Fred Walden also directed When a Stranger Calls Back, uh, which is reconfigured as a television movie, also starring Carol Kane again and Charles Durning. In 1993, he did a film called Dead Air. And the, the thing that I found interesting about that is that it's about a disrot disc jockey played by Gregory Hines, who seeks out a mystery caller who may be his girlfriend's killer. Ooh. Yeah. I think I'm Fred, intrigued. Yeah, I think Fred Walton has a thing for uh, these mysterious serial killing phone caller <laughs> call stories. Yeah, I do too. Mysterious serial killer phone calls. Yeah. 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 He also did The Stepford Husbands in 1996, which I guess is a sequel to The Stepford Children, which is a sequel to, of course, The Stepford Wives. I have not heard of either of those two. Yeah, I've heard of the uh, the Stepford Children, but not the the husband's one. Yeah, sounds like my kind of movie. Triple feature. <laughs> so it was written by uh, the director Fred Walton and Steve uh, Feek, who he wrote Mac and Me, and Mac and Me uh, is kind of an amazing, well, an amazingly kind of terrible ET ripoff. And I don't know if you haven't seen this movie. Maybe if you've seen Paul Rudd on Conan O'Brien. He often trolls him by showing um, a clip from the movie, which is the one where uh, there's the the lead boy is in a wheelchair and he kind of gets out of control going down a hill and then goes off a cliff and into the water. And then like uh, the alien's head pops up and he kind of looks around. He also directed a bunch of episodes of the 90s Dark Shadows and a few episodes of Missing Persons and the Beastmaster television show. The cast is pretty exciting of this movie. I think like they're uh, a big part of why this uh, film is successful. The, the lead, the babysitter, is Jill Johnson, played by Carol Kane. And she has like a super diverse filmography. She's been in everything from the 80s TV show Taxi to The Prince's Bride. One of my favorite roles of hers is in Scrooge, where she's the ghost of Christmas present. And also she's Grandma Adams in the first two Adams Family movies. She's... Yay! Yeah. <laughs> she's like under a ton of makeup in that. And just her list of movies is crazy. The cop, the former cop, John Clifford, played by Charles Durning. He's another one of those actors that you've probably seen him in something or other because his list is crazy. He was in The Sting and Dog Day Afternoon. But for me, um, he terrified me as a child because he's in the Muppet movie playing Doc Hopper. And he's the he's the villain. And he's the one that owns the Frog Leg restaurant and is always trying to get Kermit the Frog and fry up his legs. Ah, uh, no. Yep. 
Um, we have The Stranger, also known as Kurt Duncan. He's played by Tony Beckley, uh, who is a stage and film veteran. And he played Camp Freddy in the original Italian job with Michael Caine. He plays a serial killer in 1972's The Fiend. And he played a villain named Harrison Chase in the Doctor Who serial The Seeds of Doom. And sadly, he passed away right after the making of When a Stranger Calls. Just, yeah, it was like... A couple months. He was young, yeah. Yeah, super young. We have the character of Tracy that her character appears in the middle of the movie, played by Colleen Dewhurst. And she's a stage and film veteran as well. One of her later roles that uh, I think, Chelsea, you're familiar with. Oh, yes. Very, very familiar with. Yep. And who's she? She's in uh, Anna Green Gables. Yes. Yes. Playing um, Marilla Cuthbert. Yep. Very yep. cool. And um, I didn't know this, but actor Campbell Scott is her son. And also a little side note was that she uh, married and divorced actor George C. Scott twice. Twice? Yeah. Oh, not a third time, though. Third time's a charm. Yep. And uh, the character of Lieutenant Charlie Garber is played by Ron O'Neill. And he played Youngblood Priest in Superfly. He's also in A Force of One, The Final Countdown. And he has a really long list of other films, too. All right. So this movie does not have... The number of taglines that some of our more recent episodes films have had. We only have two, so there's not a lot to vote for. The first one is, every babysitter's nightmare becomes real. Yes, that's a good one. And then um, I kind of had to dig this one out, but it is, fear is the message. That's a bad one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm glad that they went with the... Every Babysitter's Nightmare. That's the one I saw on the poster. So, yep. So, there's some kind of cool history around the making of this film and then the kind of reception after it came out. It made a lot of money. It had a pretty low budget of at the time for 1.2 million and it made 21 million. And it, I think a lot of this is attributed to the timing of the release because it came out just before Halloween. It was October 26th of 1979. And speaking of Halloween, Chelsea, <laughs> this, is, this is pretty cool. When a Stranger Calls started out as a short film called The Sitter, and its budget was $12,000, and it was uh, Columbia Pictures who ended up financing the feature film, but the director, Fred Walton, decided to turn it into a film after John Carpenter's Halloween became super successful. I feel like you can kind of tell which part was the original short film and what was added, which we'll get into more when we discuss the movie, but yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, I I think, and like you said, we'll we'll talk about it, but Carol Kane's character kind of disappears for a large portion of this movie. That's why her hair is so long when she comes back. Yeah, I didn't yeah. want to say anything while we were watching it because I was like, okay, I, there's like a hard cut of when the short film was and then it's like they pick it up and it's like, yep. All right, so a little bit of history behind uh, the character of Kurt Duncan. Apparently, the director based it on a college acquaintance. How flattering. Yeah, not the murdering part, but how he could just enter a room and could make people feel uncomfortable. I guess like he felt enough sympathy for his acquaintance that they they do kind of treat Duncan with a bit of sensitivity. Oh, yes, absolutely. Which I like about it. I think it's it's very unique in the way it it treats the killer. Very different than what I was expecting. Yeah. So if you're a fan of Scream, which I am, I love Scream. I kind of feel that Wes Craven gave it a bit of a homage from this movie in terms of like the way the call she receives the phone calls and sort of the the creepy uh the creepy voice something i didn't notice as we were watching it but um there were just some notes on the film that mentioned how each time the phone rings the ringing gets louder so they purposely did that in the sound editing to create additional suspense so actor tony beckley you know who who plays kurt duncan it was his final film and he was sick 
while they were making it, and he really didn't fit the description of the killer as in the script. But Fred Walton did not want to recast him because they were good friends. And I think it's a really great performance that's that's captured. And I feel like we're really lucky to have this this final final character that um Tony Beckley got to play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, although maybe he didn't fit the description as it was written in the script, I think that, you know, the way he looked in the film, you know, we, we could talk a little bit about the remake, actually, where they have a different voice. They have a different actor doing the voice than did the character because they want the character to have a certain build. But I kind of liked the idea of this killer being like gaunt, very British. <laughs> but it was it was nice because it was so different. It kind of reminded me of um, what we talked about in our Black Christmas episode with the Denver Spider-Man being so skinny that he could kind of slip into these places that, you know, you wouldn't expect a human to get into. I liked it. I thought it was excellent. Yeah. I like when our villains don't have to be the a hulking brute. Yes. So just jumping back into Carol Kane. So she plays, she has uh, another film, but this time she plays the killer in a slasher film called Office Killer. And it came out in 1997. I have not seen it. I've not even heard of it. Now, yeah. now I want to see it though. Yep. I mentioned Robert Ebert a lot um, on the podcast and, you know, he doesn't, he didn't do a, a, a really full review other than calling it sleazy. It's an interesting choice because I don't feel like it's sleazy at all. There's hardly anything sexual. And I guess when I think of sleazy, I think of like, I don't know, films that are full of like weird male gazy shots. And I don't think there was any of that in this movie. Yeah. I don't know. E Ebert had hang-ups for horror movies. Yeah. I think he probably thought they were all sleazy. Oh. <laughs> it was originally going to be uh, rated PG, but the board decided to give it an R rating. And this was because there was an argument that the film was too unsettling for parents who they thought maybe they could just send their kids off to the to the movie theater to watch When a Stranger Calls. Yes, I actually agree with with the board on this one, although I feel like a PG-13 rating would have been befitting. I know they probably didn't exist, right? That was a, right. at a later time. But um, yeah. but yeah, it's I guess we'll we'll talk about more stuff with the remake, but kind of. This film going places where I think um, the modern film, despite maybe being more graphically violent, would not go. But why don't we talk about the remake briefly first and then we could talk about that. Yeah, um, this movie was remade in 2006 and directed by Simon West. Um, it starred Camilla Bell. And you had mentioned the the caller not being the actor that played the stranger in physical form in the remake. And the voice is of Lance Hendrickson. Yay. Yes, big fan. I love uh, I love Lance. Well, if you don't recognize his name, he's in Pumpkinhead and he's Bishop and Alien. And he's just a great genre actor. He was lead Frank in Millennium, which was a spinoff of the X-Files for Fox and, and just everything. And um, I guess I had a couple of fun run-ins with him recently at a horror con in Chicago. Um, but just, just a, a great person, but an awesome voice and just the perfect uh, voice of the stranger in the remake. I would say the highlight of the movie. Yes, which I think, spoiler alert, the movie's not really great. So being the highlight of the movie, just having it associated somewhat with Lance Henriksen, definitely the highlight. All yeah, right. so uh, what did you think? Have you checked the children, Chelsea? <laughs> so... Oh, wait, hang on. I know we're, we flash forward to the remake, but the, we're, we're talking about the original film. So Well, uh, I'm talking about both. Oh, oh okay. I have no. opinions. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, well I, yeah. <laughs> All right. So... 
I very much enjoyed the original. I thought it was scary. You can vouch for me on this. It was one of those, you know, the home invasion movies where I can't even sit still when I watch it. I have to like get up and pace. Although I actually did it for the remake also. <laughs> I really I don't like when there's people in the house. But as we'll get into in the summary of the movie, one thing I read about it was you know, the first 20 minutes are like the scariest 20 minutes of any movie ever. And then after that, it kind of gets a little bit different. So the first 20 minutes is basically the film version of The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. And it's incredibly creepy. I think that I don't I don't know if it was a deliberate choice because you said that he was friends with the director, but having like the kind of proper British voice on the phone asking if they've checked on the children, it's just it's just really weird, but it's it's just scary. And then I would say the last, what, what was it, like 10, 15 minutes where it's back to Carol Kane was also excellent. I feel like the part in the middle, it was hard for me because I read the summary of the movie. So I knew that he came back and was going to go back after Carol Kane. So the whole middle, I was like, where is Carol Kane? She's the only person I care about in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And the, the cop character, Charles Dunning's character... I didn't like him very much. I feel like he made a lot of mistakes seeking, you know, essentially extrajudicial punishment for this person. He wanted to kill them rather than just arrest them and have them sent back to a, a mental hospital. You know, if he had just been working with police, they would have captured this guy probably like four times <laughs> during oh, the movie. Yeah, totally agree. So uh, that part, you know, was a bit frustrating. I also think that they did portray. Kurt Duncan as more of a sympathetic character. It seemed clear that he was not just a crazy murderer. Well, I mean, he was a crazy murderer, I guess is what I'm saying. It it felt like it was stemming from deeper psychological issues than the desire to murder children. You know, that characterization, I think, fleshed out a little more than in the remake. Um, one thing I found very interesting, and this is what I look for when you know watching older films and their remakes, is... The original film really does follow the babysitter and the man upstairs where the children are killed and she doesn't know it. She's receiving the phone calls and she gets the call that is coming from inside the house. And this is the creepiest scene where she's like going to leave the house and she turns and just looks at the stairs and you see like the light from the crack of the door opening and like a man silhouetted and then she runs out like into the police officer. But the, the children are killed in that. And then you have in the remake, spoiler alert, the children survive. The ones that are in the majority of the that are yeah yeah so that it was just starts with that case where the kids get killed but yeah so they're they're setting this up to be someone who's a serial killer they say I think at the end they say he's killed fifteen people and like his mo is I guess attacking houses with babysitters but but I just thought you know it wasn't very true to the urban legend and it felt like maybe they thought it was a step too far which is weird because it wasn't a step too far thirty years ago <laughs> but of course both adaptations are not true to the real story where the kid's the one that's fine and the babysitter is the one that's killed. And also the babysitter is not receiving the call. The cops are receiving the call. But yeah, so we, we all won't, when we go through the movie, have many comparisons to the true story because it's it's just not about that really. But uh, what did you think of the movie, David? I really enjoyed this film. I hadn't seen it. Um, I had just known about the title, I guess, um, without knowing really what it was about. And I kept getting this confused with some other late 70s like horror movies. But it's a good title. Really great title. Yes. But like you said, it's interesting because there's almost two films here between the three acts of the movie. The middle feels like it's a, a bit 
disconnected from the the bookend story but i really like this movie i think that the performance is a spot on carol kane is a, a character that i like kind of following but i was terrified for her <laughs> as you know kurt is i mean the whole the whole initial setup and the phone call and everything it lasts like 20 minutes of just like it's very suspenseful it's not the 20 most scariest minutes i've seen in a movie Ooh, what are the 20 most scariest minutes you've seen in a movie oh i don't know i'd have i really would have to think a lot all right about we'll this. have to get back to our listeners with that yeah we'll have to uh, we'll have to think about that but um i th- i think that between the two stories of like carol and then charles durning where it becomes kind of a police procedure not even, not a procedural it's just like a a lone lone former cop on the hunt of a killer and it's a kind of a misguided journey so i feel similar to you and not having a ton of sympathy for the character that charles journey plays john he's kind of on a full-hearted mission he's also basically reawakens in kurt duncan the like mania that made him kill in the first place you know he confronts Kurt Duncan and says, I'm going to take you like back to the hospital to get the help you need. And then tries to like throw a knife at him. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's basically the reason that, you know, he then goes back after uh, Jill, which just, yeah. Yeah. I, I disagree with everything he did. Yeah. <laughs> but much. I mean, but as it's written and as the film plays out, I, I really enjoy it. I think it all, I think it all works. I just, the whole time I'm disagreeing with what John is doing. <laughs> Yes. And the whole time I'm like, where's Carol Kane? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Because I mean, that the setup is so good and, and then you're kind of waiting. So if you're sitting down to watch this movie after you listen, you know, listen to this episode, just like be prepared that there's a, a large middle part of the film where the character of Jill, it, she's not in it. There's no trace of her at all. And I feel like if I had not read the back of the DVD where I knew he was going to go back after Jill, it would have been a very different experience. Yeah. But because I knew that, and I was not aware that there was a middle part. I just was a little bit like I was just the whole middle part. I was waiting for it to get back to her, which you know, it's not the best way, I think, to watch this movie. So just know that there's a middle part and that it does eventually go back to her, I think. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, well, I will say, I think having watched Black Christmas so closely to watching this movie kind of informed my it, it did not hinder in my appreciation of it. It didn't feel like a copycat other than. The line is almost the same where it's like the call is coming from inside the house. Um, but they both stole that from the the urban legend. So which one did you like more? Oh, wait. Oh, Black Christmas versus One of Stranger Calls? Yeah. Oh, Black Christmas, hands down. I think I did too. I just think, I guess maybe it is the middle part. That's why they're not really comparable to me. I don't think we talked about this yet. So the remake is basically that first 20 minutes spread out into an entire movie. Yeah. There's not any continuation after the the killer is caught at the end and i kind of wonder if one of stranger calls would be a better movie if it had more of that structure but i just wonder how you could fill the time because the stuff they used to fill the time in that other movie eh, just just wasn't great yeah um i i did feel like they they took the shorter premise and just stretched it out which they i think combine a- that 20 minute short film with like a hgtv thing on how nice this big fancy expensive house is it has like a bird room in the center i would have liked the remake to have maybe excised the middle but then done like camilla bell's character when she's a babysitter and then when she's like a mom and they could have just that done have worked two acts yeah. like that yeah yeah i could definitely see that being the case and they could have lance hendrickson be the stranger in the second half 
in they should have had form. him be the physical stranger in all of it there's oh, yeah, no definitely. reason to have another person it's for some reason like the one thing they expanded upon in the original movie in the remake was like the love triangle with bobby I'm like does anyone care about that really no that's what you came away with from when a stranger calls it's like you know what this movie needs more bobby yeah no they kept the character and they i mean they they lifted like dialogue directly from the original script which was interesting yeah <laughs> all right well we're gonna really spend most of the time walking through the original because it's pretty good it's really good it's really good yeah yeah all right so we talk about carol kane a lot and you're probably wondering why are you talking about carol kane so much well it's because she's great it starts off that her character is jill and she is babysitting um the children of a couple the mandrakis family and it's a i guess it's a doctor he's a doctor so they kind of have this setup of you know the children are are sleeping. I think they've they're like a little bit sick, so yeah, don't wake them. Yeah, they had them. the flu, mm-hmm. so took her a long time to get them down. I think they're like word for word because they use this in both movies. Uh, so like whatever you do, don't wake the children. Be like the easiest babysitting job you ever had. Just let the children sleep. Which to me that seems suspicious. Like, are they robots? Is it a doll? Is are there no living children? Are they just two dolls in a bed? It. It is pretty creepy. And that's kind of the we're talking about is the premise of House of the Devil, where she's goes to babysit, but there's not actually a child there. I'd be very suspicious if it's the first time I'm going to babysit a family and I don't like see a child straight away. Nah. I really want to watch House of the Devil again now. No, that movie was terrifying. So good. So the children are asleep and the couple they leave and they say, um, you know, if we're out and we're having a good time or whatever, we may go see a movie. So it is it okay if it's like 1230 or whatever when we get back? And she's like, oh, no problem. She kind of does the babysitter stuff that you do as you do, just hanging out at the house and checking out stuff and sitting on the couch. And then she gets a phone call and there's a man on the other line that asks if she has checked the children, which is very odd. Yes. And it's a, a British man. So, you know, it's not the parents or probably anyone that she knows. But she does think at first maybe it's a prank because there is I guess she's fighting with her boyfriend Bobby and asked her one friend to give Bobby the phone number so she is wondering if maybe you know it's him calling but um, it's not so the man hangs up right after asking yep but he calls again and again and again and uh, she calls the police for the first time but they you know ask oh is he threatening you and she's like well, no, it's just like creepy phone calls. And the police are like, oh, it's sure it's nothing to worry about. It's just prank phone calls. People get them all the time. Well, and then the cop says, is there a whistle? Do you have a whistle? Yeah. Uh, what you do is you take the whistle and you blow the whistle really hard into the receiver. And that's going to scare his ears. And that'll get him. That'll get yep, him. That'll get him. <laughs> so things get creepy, though, because she gets a phone call from the man. You know, he's clearly being increasingly agitated. And he says, you know, why haven't you checked on the children yet? And that's when she knows that he can see her. So, you know, she goes and closes the blinds and she calls the police back and says that he must be outside of the house watching. So then the police are taking it a little bit more seriously. They do take down the address and you know, said they do have cops in the area and to keep him on the line for a minute so that they can trace the call. Yeah, and they so. don't get into all the kind of behind the scenes stuff of tracing a call like Black Christmas does because you're focused just on Jill, which I think I think makes it effectively scary. Yeah, so she receives another call from the man and she's able to keep him on the phone 
right. for the full minute. And I th- he says something weird or, yeah. at the end of the call, though, where it's she's like asking him what he wants, and he's like, "Your blood." Your blood. Ah. And then she hangs up, and she gets a phone call, and it's the police, and they say that he's calling. It. Yeah, they trace the call, and he's calling from inside the house. Oh, it's giving me goosebumps. Uh-huh. I think the same thing happened. We were talking about Black Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But so they're just like, get out, get out of the house. And of course, the front door is right next to the stairs that go upstairs. So this is the scene where like she goes to the door. She had like chained and bolted the door. So she like unlocks the door, unbolts it and goes to pull it open, but forgets about the chain. And she's trying to get the door open and shaking it. And it's like stuck on the chain. And upstairs you see like the light from the door opening the way like when you open it the light gets like wider yeah. and you see like the man silhouetted and she finally gets the chain off and runs out straight into the police officer yep officer so <laughs> and that's that's the end of perhaps the scariest 20 minutes in any movie ever i don't know you you tell us what you think it, yeah it was very scary it's very scary and the fact that he is trying to lure her upstairs the whole time so like at any mo- i mean it's different than black christmas because you know billy and black christmas just seems a little bent and like he's murdering them one by one but he's not luring them somewhere you know yeah, yeah. Like this is and and the the sad thing is that the children are already dead too that's like oh anyway what's the line that's in both movies no murder weapon was used he just pulled them apart with his bare hands yeah. and they like take the bodies out in like essentially just black garbage bags rather than body bags it's uh yeah he must yeah. work out <laughs> and i guess later when you do see kurt duncan you have to wonder whether he's capable of pulling apart a human yeah, with oh. his hands. I mean, I guess I didn't actually wonder that while I was watching it, but now I'm wondering it. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty grisly. <laughs> um, and at that point, I'm guessing like the sitter, that was the portion of the small film. Yes. So Officer John Clifford is kind of the in- investigating what happened. So the children were murdered a little earlier and the killer is identified as an English merchant seaman named Kurt Duncan. And this is when... Rather than like him going to prison, he ends up being found mentally whatever. What's it called? Incompetent. In- yes. Yeah. To stand trial. Basically, yeah. Uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. But, you know, not guilty doesn't mean you go walk the streets. He gets sent to an asylum. Yep. Yep. So he's sent to uh, he's sent away. And then we jumped seven years. So this is quite a bit of time later. Um, yep. Kind of like what happens. I was reading an article. Sorry, this is a, side, a sidebar. But. It was comparing When a Stranger Calls to Halloween and how a lot of the story beats kind of mirror, especially from when he escapes through the rest of the plot mm-hmm. and kind of how like Dr. Loomis is chasing down Michael. It's kind of like a crazed. Uh... Well, then it's probably not a coincidence that all of that stuff was added after Halloween was so successful, right? Yeah, oh, totally. I could totally see that now. Yep. See, in my head, I was just thinking about the similarities to Black Christmas because we had just covered it. But I, I definitely see that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. But um, we find out that uh, Duncan has escaped. I really like the scene where um, Dr. Mandrakis has hired um, Cliff, Cliff, John, sorry, between all these names, it's really hard to keep track. So uh, John, he's a private investigator and he's like, can you find him? And he's like, oh, absolutely. I will find him. Yep. And And I will kill him. Oh, (laughs) Oh. But essentially, that's his plan is he does not want to work with the police, although he does you know, interact with them at times. But he thinks that this person just needs to be stopped by being killed. Yeah. Duncan has become his white whale. And so this is when you, you know, you, you meet Duncan and he's a very sympathetic character. Yes. He has escaped, but he's not immediately portrayed as a, a threat or like a, a murderer. He's just like, 
he has been um probably being medicated and having therapy and all that kind of stuff and now he and they he, talk about that because uh john goes to the asylum and talks to the person who's working with him that said you know he's not the same person that he was when he was sent here you know he's had like electroshock therapy and you know was on all these medications but you know eventually when he's not taking them regularly these medications will wear off yeah and and john has just no sympathy at all zero Zero. He's just like, I have to catch this guy and I have to kill him. Yep. And so when you meet Duncan, he's he's he has no home. Yes. And he's all alone. But yeah. he makes his way into a bar where I mean, I'm imagining he has not had a regular interaction with a human. Well, at least since he's been incarcerated and I guess since before that he murdered some kids. So yeah. I don't know what he was like before then. Uh, maybe he, when he was a, a merchant seaman. And he gets into a fight because he's kind of like trying to talk to this woman at the bar. Who is not interested. Right. Uh, not learn interested. learn to read social cues, even yep. if you are a crazy murderer. Come on. When yep. a girl says no, she means no. Yeah. And this dude just takes him out, takes him down, beats yeah. him up. And him it out. does seem a bit over the top. I think even the woman who's Tracy, who's played by, as I mentioned earlier, Colleen Dewhurst, you know, even she feels bad for what this other guy does you know in terms of beating him up and pouring a beer on him when he's like laying on the ground but you follow tracy as she leaves the bar after duncan's character is kicked out and duncan is following her so he is um it's weird when you see him interact he does not seem threatening but because you know what he's capable of it's pretty scary you you kind of feel like he can snap at any point and he follows her all the way back to her apartment. And she's so like weird and calm about all of her interactions with this guy, basically until she finds out you know, later who who he really is. But um, you know, she she apologizes for you know, kind of being the cause of that fight. And her phone rings inside the apartment. She leaves the door open and doesn't invite him in. But he follows her in. He just walks. He just in. walks in. It's really scary. He really wants to take her out for coffee. Yeah. I mean, you're like really, really wants to take her out for coffee, you know, which I don't know where he has the money for that. Um, But he's coffee her until she's dead. Oh, (laughs) but he's he's basically saying he doesn't know anyone. He doesn't have a place to stay. And he just wants to take her out for coffee. So finally, she, you know, sort of agrees, but says that he needs to leave because her boyfriend's coming over. And I guess he just he leaves and he goes and stays at a homeless shelter for the night. Yeah. He kind of insists that they they meet tomorrow or the next day or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And meet she at some point in the future, you know, I think she agrees just to get him out of the house and he, he does leave though. And you know, she's fine. Yep. And, uh, this is when I guess John goes to the police department and he talks to his former partner and he's like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill him. And I guess like maybe he can't carry a gun. He's no longer allowed to carry a gun because he carries some like lock picks around. Yeah. And I guess he's going to stab him. It looked like like a nail file, like a sharp nail file was his weapon. Yeah. But la- he does have a gun later on. He does. So it's weird. I don't I know don't, what the decision is. I don't know why. Maybe it, it's his mechanical pencil. <laughs> they pulled the mechanical pencil out of the real life story. Yeah. And they're like, let's just make it a sharp nail file that he can throw. Yeah. Like he's a ninja. Yep. Yeah. Bizarre um, decision, but interesting. Yes. Um, but basically, he tells his partner that he's going to kill Duncan. You know, the partner is at first hesitant, but I guess, 
you know, now that the partner has kids of his own, he essentially agrees that, yeah, this person should not be living. Which is a terrible decision. I mean, it's a terrible decision. Like cops. Yeah. OK. OK. Police officers don't go after this guy. I'm going to go after him vigilante style. Like, nope. No. <laughs> He, he, like, finds him. He, like, does some tracking and ends up going to the bar. Yeah, I don't, I don't, they don't really show what he was, um, what he was going on for his information, but he does eventually meet up with Tracy. Yeah. And tells her what Duncan did. And, you know, she says that she thinks he may try to contact her again because he wanted to take her out for coffee. So John Clifford ends up essentially trailing her, you know, to the bar and then back to her house, but he never shows up. And then... Tracy goes into her house for the night and John Clifford says he's going to wait outside and hide and see if he comes by. And of course, it turns out he's in the closet. In the closet. Tracy's apartment. Yes. Very, very creepy. What, um, if, what if she got like a phone call and was like, have you checked on your salt and pepper yet? He's <laughs> like in the pantry. Or have you checked on your raincoat yet? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. How, how is the raincoat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah. He comes out, surprises her. She starts screaming and John Clifford runs in, but Duncan runs out and It's a good like chase foot foot chase scene. Yeah. Where he like yeah, he chases him out of the building. I then... will say John Clifford is not in the best physical shape. Nope. And it's it's pretty realistic though when you see him like being super out of breath but they do eventually have a confrontation well it's it's much longer than that but we'll just summarize it real quick so there's another homeless person that he'd been hanging out with that homeless person tells john clifford that he saw duncan in the homeless shelter because he thinks john clifford wants to give him money john clifford goes to the homeless shelter is like walking around at these bunk beds with a flashlight looking at people's faces of course and this is the one where i'm like if he had just worked with police and they could have surrounded the place they would have gotten him there but of course they don't and duncan wakes up he's able to run he goes down to the basement they have a confrontation there where john tells him that he just wants to help him get better take him back to the hospital and then goes and like throws his weird little sharp nail file at at duncan and misses of course and then duncan's eventually able to get out he like wakes up everyone so they go and crowd the hallways and runs out the front door is not caught by by clifford so nope loses then, the yeah trail. yep get lost there then and we get to the good part i the mean not the, i mean it's all a good part carol kane's like, back yeah carol kane is back we meet jill johnson again and she's an adult and she's married and she has two kids and they're young very cute too yeah they are and she's got a husband who's very sweet and they seem to have a very nice loving relationship her husband just got a raise and a new company car and things are great was it jill got some kind of promotion at work i guess she's she like the chair of some kind of charity. So she had a nice article featured in the newspaper with a picture of her. Yep. Which is, you know, how how, how Duncan, Duncan finds her finds her again. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It was like a great scene where you see like the newspapers kind of floating down the street. Yeah. And then he like picks it up. Yep. And you don't directly see it. But yeah. then when we we cut. Oh, to the before next we scene. get to that. Oh, yeah. So kind of after the confrontation with Clifford, where he it's pretty creepy, where he like those feelings are kind of re rewoke. What is it? The force awakens in him. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And he's like hiding in a dumpster while John Clifford is like outside of the dumpster. At least that, that was my impression of it. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. And inside he's like whispering to himself, you can't see me. You can't see me. And that'll come back later. And it's really creepy it is yeah yeah that's yeah very creepy. Um, so that's <laughs> no, why i wanted to make that. sure that we have that thread there so it, it cuts to to jill they they're going out to dinner to celebrate her husband's promotion they hire 
a babysitter. They do. Yes. Uh, where? Um, and you could you could tell that she's like still affected by her own experience. You know, leaving the babysitter all the phone numbers, but but they go out to dinner. Yep, and they're just having their dinner, and then he kind of tell uh, Stephen tells her uh, he got a promotion that's great and it's good for them financially, and he kind of whispers in her ear how much he's making, and she's like, "Oh wow!" Uh, but then of course, like as they did back then, it, one of the restaurant staff comes to her and is like, "You have a telephone call," so you're like, "Oh oh." Yes, because it it is exactly what you expect. Yep, it is. She he kind of leads her to the house phone. She gets on the line and have you checked the children? Oh my gosh, yeah. So she just has like a complete breakdown. But, you know, her husband calls the house and the babysitter answers. She says that the kids are fine. She had checked on them just like 10 minutes ago. And then he says, oh, can you go check on them again? So she she goes to check on them again. And then the phone disconnects. So everyone races home. They call the police. But when they get there, everything's fine. Well, I just want to mention, too, one thing I really like about the phone call is, wait, this is, I'm getting the movies mixed up. Because it's like, was, are you OK? Like, are, is he there? Is he making? You oh yes, that, that that was this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, he's the husband is not stupid. Right. He yeah he thinks that maybe the person's there threatening her, but she's like, no, no, there's no one here. It's completely fine. I love that moment. Yeah, but then you know because the phone gets connects, they run home. But it turns out that kids are fine, babysitter's fine, you know everyone's fine that night. Obviously, Jill is very unsettled. So the husband gets a shotgun out and leans it up against the dresser and says he's a light sleeper and they'll be fine. But she can't sleep. She gets up. She's walking around the house. She goes and checks on the kids. And one of the kids is for some reason holding like a lollipop and she doesn't know where he got it from. So it's like it's all kind of building the mood because... We know not everything's fine because otherwise it, it would, they wouldn't be showing it in a horror movie. But, you know, eventually she she gets back into bed and then you hear Kurt Duncan's voice again saying, you can't see me. You can't see me like that. The stuff he was chanting when he had that kind of mental break. Yep. And they go over and they like show the closet and you see the door open a crack. And this, I, I thought it was going to be like the eye in the closet, like in Black Christmas, that scene. Me too. Yeah. Um, but it's even scarier than that because it turns out that Kurt Duncan is in the bed. You know, she thinks it's her husband sleeping there and he just like sits up and it's him. Ah. Ah. The call's coming from within your, in your bed. Yeah. Oh, it's so, yeah. It's oh great. my gosh. That amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they get into, uh, physical struggle and actually John Clifford ends up showing up which the police were talking about the phone call that she got in front of John Clifford's old partner so you can surmise that when he heard about it and heard that it was Jill Johnson again he told John Clifford who knew that it must be Kurt Duncan so yeah so that's kind of how how he got back into it but he finally gets his white whale um because he he does shoot and kill Duncan he does and fortunately though so they like open up the closet and Stephen kind of falls out and in a, I think in a standard horror movie he would be dead and it would just be a, yeah. an awful ending but uh he kind of is stirring a little bit you can tell yeah. he's just unconscious and I I love that because Jill undergoes this great tragedy in the beginning of the film but ultimately she still has her family at the end of it and yeah. rather than them taking th- more things away from her yeah I just think like they kind of in on that 
that positive. Note. It is nice. And I, I kind of appreciate that, you know, because they do show some sympathy for the character of Kurt Duncan, you know, and that maybe he's not entirely in control of his actions. You know, I like that they didn't make him kill more innocent people. Yeah. You know, we think of other movies where kind of it's someone has left whatever facility they're at, like we watched Blood Rage at Thanksgiving. Yes. And that was a case of the twin brother kind of getting out of the institution that he is at. But and the twin brother is not the killer. Exactly. He's <laughs> the good one. But uh, but I always think like this this is heartbreaking in a in a way because I would like to think that Kurt Duncan could have been fully rehabilitated because like whatever treatment he was getting was possibly working and then I, mean, I think it, it worked enough that he could maybe function within the facility. Yeah, but then it kind of the effects sort of wear off. Yeah. In the the middle act of the yeah. movie after he escapes and then as he's he's getting closer to Jill. Yeah. And at that point, I mean, he's kind of back to how he was in the beginning of the movie. Except that, you know, he he didn't kill anyone. Uh, he didn't kill yeah, he didn't yeah. kill the children or Yeah, he didn't kill anything. the children. He right. probably could have he probably could have killed the children and the babysitter before they came home. Oh, that's a great point because he was in, I'm in I'm assuming house. he was in the house because he got the phone number for the restaurant. He knew where they were. And so that that was kind of my assumption. No, that makes sense. Um yeah. but yeah, but it's definitely I think not typical in its portrayal of his character, which kind of makes it all the more meaningful that it was the actor's last movie. So it's different, but it's great, even though he dies. And I mean, he if he wasn't killed, he would have probably killed Jill. And then who knows what would have happened to the children and the husband. But yeah, I think it's a little atypical in its portrayal of him as just being really just dissociated from reality. Yep. You know, I think yeah. more than the killer in any other horror movie that I've seen, at least. So, yeah. So, yeah. Little, you know, maybe maybe a little bit tragic also. Yep. Yeah. yeah, totally. Tragic ending. Yeah, but fun movie. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad we watched it and covered it for this story. And I think it's it's just interesting because you had mentioned, you know, there's not a ton of parallels in terms of the true crime aspect of it. But it definitely has like that inspiration, I feel like, behind it. Yeah. You know, I want to know how the urban legend made that jump from the actual story to what it is because it is really different than what happened. Yeah. Also, where's the hook hand? Yeah, no hook hand. No hook no hand. No dog licking your hand or whatever. Yep. Just mash all of the urban legends together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, totally. You know, it's actually looking... a dog with a hook for a paw. <laughs> yep. You say babysitter killer three times in a mirror? Yeah. All right. And then a dog with a hook for a paw appears. <laughs> Wearing a, a, a sack. Wearing a sack mask. Yeah. Mask. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you want to say anything else about the remake other than what we touched upon? Not really. The remake just felt a lot like any mid-2000s horror movie with like a smidgen of the original movie in it. Kids survive. The babysitter survives. They have a few other characters that they added in so that some people die to raise the stakes. It was like a housekeeper that gets killed and uh, her friend that, well, her frenemy you know, that Bobby kissed. Ooh. Ooh. Um, it just wasn't anything special. I liked the house. The house, the house setup was kind of neat, but. Um, I mean, I would like to live in the house. Actually, no, I probably wouldn't. Too many windows. Oh, there are. Like a creepy amount of windows. Yeah. Zombies could burst through any of those glass panes at any time when the zombie apocalypse happens. Would not do it. I like to spend too much time hanging out in a bathrobe to live in a house with that many windows. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right. Well, that is When a Stranger Calls, both the original and then touching upon the remake. We hope you enjoyed us chatting about this. And if you have not seen it and you've listened all the way through here and we spoiled the hell out of it, I still think you should check it out. It's a really great movie. 
Yes, absolutely. I think that the experience of watching it is more than we could describe. So you should definitely check it out. Yep. All right. In closing, what do you have for now playing? So my now playing is actually uh, my Christmas present from my sister and brother-in-law. It's a graphic novel called The Hunting Accident, A True Story of Crime and Poetry. I have not finished it yet. I'm maybe like a third of the way through, but it's it's amazing. And I think that for anyone who's just into beautiful graphic novels or true crime stories, you know, really consider checking it out. So what it's about is a boy who was raised by his mother and his mother dies when he's pretty young and he has to go and live with his father in Chicago. And his father is a blind poet. And he'd been told since childhood that his father had lost his eyesight in a hunting accident. Um, But as he grows up and kind of gets in with a bad crowd and actually gets in pretty serious trouble with the law, his father tells him that it wasn't actually a hunting accident. He had lost his eyesight when he and a group of friends tried to rob someone. And actually someone had died during the, the robbery and he got sent to prison. And he actually got his life turned around in prison with help from Nathan Leopold from Leopold and Loeb. And it's just it's it's mind blowing. Just go go check it out. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Uh, What's your now playing? Uh, So I have two. One is a podcast episode of um, Good Morning, Nancy. And it is episode 14, Salem's Lot, Suck Blood. And it's uh, dedicated to Toby Hooper, but it covers his made for a TV film, Salem's Lot, which I love. It's a really great adaptation of the Stephen King novel, and they get into some uh, really fun details about that and about Stephen King and the making of the the movie, I mean, the TV movie, and uh, it's just really great. So Yeah, um, if they're, you're... they're always on point. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so it's awesome. And then on a related note, I have a book, and that is Stephen King's The Shining. I don't know if you've heard of it. Kind of new. I, I've never heard of it. Tell me more. Yeah, Um. so The sh- <laughs> no, I'm lying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've I've been kind of creeping my way through this book, but I had actually just been reading a book of Stephen King's short stories, and I was halfway through when I realized I had read it before. So I jumped I hate back when that over. Happens. Yeah, yeah. It took me a whole half of the book to realize that. So I'm jumping back over to The Shining in advance of starting Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel, The Shining Two, Doctor Sleep. I think that's the official title. Yeah. That's my official title when I'm sleepy. <laughs> yeah right on so that's my now playing do you have a coming soon you know you've probably heard of it if you've been on the internet in the past week but it's end of the effing world the trailer was suddenly all over my facebook and everyone's really excited about it and it, i think the trailer hit on like monday and it got released friday which is yesterday or three days ago or who knows how long ago depending on when you're listening to this but yeah i'm really excited to to watch it hopefully we'll have uh some time to binge it after I finish editing this podcast. So what's your coming soon? Uh, my coming soon is The Shape of Water. Yes. Guillermo del Toro's new film and uh, really excited to see that. So hopefully yeah. by I mean definitely by next episode we will have watched it and uh, hopefully give you just a couple yeah. of thoughts on it. My parents already saw it and my mom said it was a perfect movie which is the like absolute highest praise my parents 
have much better taste than me in movies. And when they say something is a perfect movie, they're not kidding. So I'm I'm really excited to see it. They do they do have good taste, and that's a pretty outstanding uh, review of The Shape of Water. So all right, well, just to wrap it up, please join us on social. If you are not, we are all over the place: Instagram at Based on a True Crime, Twitter at True Crime Based, Facebook based on a true crime podcast we also have a discussion group it is called cult of based on a true crime you can check us out at www.basedonatruecrime.com and if you go into apple Podcasts, you can rate and review us but also we're on stitcher streaming i think there's an opportunity to review us there uh we are on google play with their which i believe there are areas to review us so wherever you can just uh you know Hopefully you say some nice things. Yes, yes, please do. We're at 75 ratings now, which is just stellar. But you know, I would love to to uh, to get some more. My personal white whale is 100 reviews. So, yes. you know, I'm going to start throwing nail files at it and see what happens. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. And also, hopefully, Patreon. So check us out. We appreciate anything you'd be able to pay. If you can't pay anything, we totally understand too. You know, the best way to help us would be reviewing or telling a friend. Tell a friend. Yep. We uh, we want to continue growing the show. And um, the other thing too is that, you know, we, we're adjusting the format just a little bit, a little more in depth, as Chelsea said at the top of the show in terms of these full episodes. But um, we appreciate all of your support. Hope that 2018 so far has been amazing for you. We've kicked 2017 out the door. And uh, speaking of doors, death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. <laughs>